because we are in Christ, we can go to him in prayer. Would you join with me now as we do that? Holy God, we come before you this morning knowing how great you are. This week we celebrate the day that you took on flesh. In a display of humility, you were born of a virgin. You became a man and put on flesh. The God of the universe was born. He hungered and thirsted. You were not born, though, in a palace or with pomp and celebration, but as a servant. Your birth was a picture of your entire life, one of humility, service, and death. We confess that we are quick to forget your humility. We are quick to look for the glory in your birth and in your life. Our hearts are quick to look for the peace and comfort that you offer and not what you actually call us to. Our lives are, are shaped by pride that looks for the easy way out. Give our hearts eyes that see the path that you call us to walk, which is the same path that you walked. May we not look for, to be greater than others, but humble ourselves. May we enter into the lives of those around us rather than condescend to them. Give us the same passion for your mission that caused you to leave heaven and put on flesh. And it is for this reason, Lord, that we can give thanks. For while we don't deserve it, we thank you for your humble obedience. During this season, with all of the lights and celebration, we pray that we do not look to be equal to you, but respond to your birth with humble gratitude. We also thank you this morning for churches that preach the same gospel that we do in the, the, the Salem and surrounding area. This morning we thank you for Redemption Church in Northeast Portland. We thank you for Pastor Virgil Brown and for the elders there. Lord, we pray that they would be a, a faithful witness to your gospel there in the Coley neighborhood. And as they encounter the, the normal struggles of a two-year-old church plant, we pray that you would equip them for many long years of faithfulness. Finally, we pray for ourselves. And as we descend into Christmas this week, I pray that you would guard us against healthy, unhealthy expectations. The holidays hold so much hope and never seem to live up to them. May we remember that our greatest hope is in you. The hope of a life with you is a, re a sure reality. All other hopes pale in comparison. We pray that we would be a people who knows and lives out the hope of our salvation above and beyond the hope that this season and this world offers. And finally, we also pray for the word this morning that it would uh, bring life to our hearts and, and quicken us to good works this week. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nick. You can have a seat. Open your Bibles to chapter 5 of Revelation. <clears throat> chapter 5 of Revelation. Have you ever had a moment when you were worshiping in song with fellow believers where you thought that you caught a glimpse of heaven? As you sing together by the Spirit, you catch a slight bit of the glory that eternity holds. Have you ever had one of those moments? Not yet. 
I have been blessed on multiple occasions within this local body and elsewhere to catch that slight glimpse of heaven. But there's one instance that stands out in my mind. You've already gotten a preview of it. Almost four years ago, I was thankful to attend a conference called T4G, or Together for the Gospel, in Louisville, Kentucky, with Seth. And one of the things I loved most about this conference was that it was big in terms of the audience. It filled a stadium full of tens of thousands, and big in terms of the speakers. And yet, when it came to worshiping in song, there was a simple piano and a single, single singer on the stage, And this was intended to focus on Jesus and Jesus alone, not on a band, not on a program. It was to focus on the collective worship of the gathered towards the risen Savior. I was so blown away that I recorded some of it. Here's a quick clip. the sheer volume of the thousands of voices singing in classic hymn to Christ, but it brought a tear to my eye in hopeful anticipation for the day in which we get to experience the heavenly singing that we will see in our text today. For in this text of chapter 5 in Revelation, a text that continues out of the vision of chapter 4, we're going to see multiple eruptions of praise and song. And these songs completely eclipse that small glimpse I just gave you from T4G. In this chapter, we will hear all of creation sing praise toward the throne that rules over the cosmos. But what will be most breathtaking about what we will see this morning is the focus of that worship. For here in chapter 5, we will see one of the most paradoxical figures in all of the Bible and really in all of history itself. We will see the promised Messiah of Israel, but we will see him as both a conquering lion and as a slain lamb. And it's because of this combination of qualities that the entirety of heaven and earth will break forth in praise. And this morning, I hope that it will help our hearts to break forth in that same kind of praise. We will see and hear John's recounting of a vision of the worthy king who conquered through weakness a vision of the worthy king who conquered through weakness. Right away, in our human flesh, we rear back at this. We think, how on earth can you conquer through weakness? Now, Jesus, through the angel to John the Apostle, has here presented us with a spiritual masterpiece. The symbolism in chapter 5 describes perfectly the good news of the death and resurrection and the reign of Jesus Christ, And the flow of language and imagery synthesizes the story of God's people from Israel through the church and the hope that is provided and given to the church so that we might have strength and stand firm in times of greatest trouble. Now, it is the ultimate preacher's joy and the preacher's ultimate fear to come to a passage such as this because, friends, no matter how I proclaim it to you, 
I will do a disservice to this passage. And so I implore you to read over this passage and the many passages we will go through from the Old Testament today. Read them yourself this week. Immerse, them, immerse yourself in them and ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see the majesty of God. Well, let's go ahead and read through chapter 5 and do our best within our human understanding to unpack its glories. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And Mission Fellowship said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Last week we looked at chapter 4 and saw the vision of the sovereign creator and his heavenly throne. We saw, in essence, the existence of God before all time, before creation, and glimpsed his unfading holiness, his eternal nature, his transcendence, and the fact that he is self-existent and the source of all creation. And we were left with a sense of reverence. But now we come to the second half of this same vision, and we see that something has gone terribly wrong. John was in awe as we were at the sight of the emanation of God, but now his mood drastically changes because he is seeing an unworthy creation unable to save itself. An unworthy creation unable to save itself. 
To grasp John's heartfelt bitterness of pain, let's think through the biblical theology that comes to bear on this moment. All the way back in the beginning of God's creation, he gave the entirety of the earth to the first Adam to subdue it and have dominion over it. God gave Adam all that was over the face of the earth. You can go back and read that in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He gave it to him to sustain him. And Adam was given the task of tending and keeping the Garden of Eden that served as a temple-like connection point between God and man. But Adam failed in his job, and his wife Eve was deceived by the enemy of God, and the one who came to her in the form of a serpent sold her a lie. As a result, creation was given over to futility and original sin, and the dominion that was intended for Adam was now held by what the Apostle Paul calls the God of this world. Not a capital G God, but a little g God. And so a hope that we sing about, especially at Christmas time, was initiated. All throughout the Old Testament, a messianic hope was proclaimed. A hope that a weary world would one day rejoice because a second Adam, a last Adam, would come from the seed of the woman to redeem the creation and crush the head of the enemies of God and bring all that was made wrong back into right once again. Whatever trials and tribulations came the way of Israel throughout the word, this hope of a Messiah, or in the Greek, a Christ, a Christos, an anointed king that would bring salvation, this hope was what they relied upon. And one of the most vivid images of this hope is found in the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 that we have referenced often over the last year. Let's refresh it in our mind by reading it together. Would you go there with me? And keep your finger here in Revelation, but go to Daniel 7. And let's just refresh our memories a bit, reading in Daniel 7, 9 through 14. And I want you to look for and notice the similarity and imagery here. Daniel 7, verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is from the context before. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now remember the context here. God's people were in exile in a foreign pagan nation, and it seems as though the nations of the world, pictured as wild beasts coming up out of the sea, that they would always rule in hostility, that Israel would always be in exile over the, uh, under the, the reign of Babylon. But in the midst of that bad news, God grants Daniel a vision of what is occurring behind the scenes in the heavenly realm to give God's people hope. Now right away, we should be noticing similarities to Revelation 4 and 5. 
The Ancient of Days sits on the throne in amazing glory, almost exactly like the vision the Apostle John saw in Revelation 4. And it's in his glory that the Almighty destroys the beast and his dominion. He conquers. The earth itself is then taken and given to this messianic figure, the Son of Man. But Daniel is left wondering. He's left wondering, when will this happen? Yes, we have this hope, but when will it happen? And he is given the answer later in Daniel 12, verses 8 and 9. It says, I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, Daniel said to the angel, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Now, this is the imagery that we are to hold in our minds as we go back to Revelation 5 and as we read through it. And we see there in verses 1 through 4 that in the hand of the one who sits on the throne is a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. It says in Revelation 5, 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Now, this is a hope, this idea of a Messiah that we just covered in Daniel is a hope that John has been raised on as a citizen of Israel, under persecution by the Romans, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, watching his brothers and sisters in the church, the true Israel, die as martyrs. And so his heart, as most of ours do, cries out with the question, the same question that Daniel had, when will this plan come to fruition? When will the Messiah rule and reign? When will the plan of God be carried out? Well, here back in Revelation 5, John has now been transported in a vision to the very throne room of God that Daniel witnessed. And he sees what, by all accounts, is the fulfillment of the promised vision of Daniel 7. He sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father himself, on the throne. Could this be that moment? Could this be the moment where the sealed plan of God is opened and accomplished? After all, the voice of Christ in verse, uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 1 called John into the throne room to see what must take place after this. Perhaps this is the unsealing of the plan of God. And so he looks closer. In the right hand of the Almighty, he sees a scroll. It's lettering on the outside and within, and it's sealed with seven wax seals. Now in the ancient world, important documents were sealed with melted wax that were impressed upon with an image particular to the author. Perhaps a monogram or an insignia, like what you see up here on the screen. This unbroken seal would show that it was authentic from a particular author, intended for a particular recipient. Any person not authorized by that author to break the seals would be committing a crime. It was the encryption of the day, if you will. A scroll could not be read and the instructions within could not be acted upon unless the seals were broken. And in the Roman Empire especially, we know this form of communication occurred. It was especially true of important documents such as wills or deeds of title, which required seven witnesses and thus seven individual seals. A document that arrived in the hands of the recipient with these seven seals intact meant that what was inside was secure. The writing on the outside was intended to be aligned with that written on the inside so that the recipient, once they broke the seals, could be assured that the contents had not been altered. 
It would fit the context of John's day that he would realize that this scroll he sees in the hand of the Ancient of Days is of immense importance. This scroll would also be of importance to John because it bears a strong resemblance to another scroll, a scroll of God's judgment given to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel to pronounce over Israel. We see it here. You can write this down and read it later in your own Bibles. In Ezekiel 2, 9 through 3, 4, it says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. Behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, he said to Ezekiel, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with, uh, with my words to them. And so the close parallels with the scrolls of both Daniel and Ezekiel show this to be a heavenly scroll that outlines God's plan for the redemption of creation. Can you think of a more important document? And it's unsealed and opened, if it is unsealed and opened, all those historic hopes of redemption that have been since the beginning of time will come true. And so John stands in the throne room looking upon this scroll. Can you imagine his immense anticipation? Open it already! Let it play out! Let the redemption come, he might be thinking. All of Israel's hopes all of the hopes of the believers in Christ could be fulfilled once this scroll is opened and acted upon. But just then, John sees a mighty angelic figure step forward and ask all of creation, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who is worthy to accomplish the redemptive plan of God? Now, the original promise of kingdom inheritance had been made to the first Adam, but he had forfeited his right of inheritance. He had forfeited his right to open the scroll and to read its contents. But perhaps one of his offspring could fulfill it, for it has to be a human that opened it and received the inheritance. And so John and all those attending the throne room, they waited in silence for an answer. Who is worthy? Can you hear the silence, friends? It was the heaviest silence imaginable. For no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was or is able to open the scroll or look into it. No one is able to see it, let alone accomplish it. Could you? Could I? You see, the effects of original sin have relegated all of creation infected with that original sin. And there is no one found righteous not even one. John says there in verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The literal rendering is that he wept much or he wailed. The most blood-curdling sounds I have heard in this life are when I have sat with those in deep mourning as they wailed in bitter sadness and hopelessness at the loss of a loved one. That is the image here. A wailing, 
that comes from the depths of his soul. John is wailing in bitter hopelessness because he fully grasps the truth that we exist in an unworthy creation, unable to save ourselves. This is the height of conviction. And until the scroll is opened, God's redemptive purposes cannot be accomplished, and the messianic hopes of the whole world seem impossible. If only, if only there was one who was both God and man, an inheritor of the earth promised to mankind, and yet as holy as God to take the scroll and open it and accomplish its purposes. If only. Praise God that this is not where the vision ends. One of the elders speaks to John and tells him, weep no more, and he motions towards the throne and says, behold. And it is then that John turns his head to see the worthy king who conquered through weakness. The worthy king who conquered through weakness. Verse 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne." As John wipes away the tears, the symbolic weight of the Old Testament comes to us in full force as he sees both a lion and a lamb. First, the elder proclaims that the figure John beholds is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, the last major patriarch of Israel, Jacob, is pronouncing a blessing upon his sons before he dies. And specifically to his son Judah, he pronounces that he is a lion that will subdue his enemies and that from his offspring will come a scepter of rule over all of Israel and the rest of the peoples. This is Genesis 49, 8 through 10. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This one that John sees, that stands here before John and the rest of heaven, is the one that fulfills this comparison in perfection. But not only that, he also calls him the root of David. God had chosen King David to be a man after his own heart and lead his people Israel. But his legacy was quickly destroyed as the people of Israel continued in their blatant rebellion and idolatry. And they were taken into exile and cut off, if you will, like a tree that is chopped down. But then throughout the prophets, God speaks to the people and tells them that while it seemed like all that remained was a stump, from its roots would come forth one that would complete the redemptive work of God. And speaking of that day of paradise regained, the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 11.10. He said, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And Isaiah wrote this 700 plus years before 
Jesus, 800 years plus before Revelation was written. It is this lion of the tribe of Judah and this root of David that is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And so John turns with anticipation to see this warrior king in all of his glory. He turns to see the one that has conquered in strength and valor. Are you ready to see this one? This one in strength. But there's one problem. Remember that this messianic figure needs to be a human and needs to be godlike. But it's just as true that with this legal document, most likely a deed or a will to the inheritance of all creation, it can only be unsealed and executed if the one that authored it is also dead. How could one who is God and one who is especially this warrior hero also be the one who is dead? And John focuses a bit more on the throne. And John sees that this lion is actually a lamb, a young lamb. But this was no ordinary lamb. It was a lamb that was seen as both standing and yet slain. In the Greek, these words are what are called perfect participles, which state this as an ongoing state. Throughout all eternity future, Jesus will stand as a conquering king and yet also as a slain lamb. And this is why he was able to speak of himself in verse 18 of chapter 1, saying that he was the living one who died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. And this idea of the lamb is integral to Revelation. In chapters 4 through 22, the word lamb will be used to describe Christ 27 times. In providing this seemingly confusing paradox, John is actually bringing great clarity to the Old Testament promises and their fulfillment in Jesus that up until this point, up until Christ had long confused the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You see, throughout the Old Testament prophecies, God is pictured as both a conquering king and yet his salvation is brought about by a different kind of war. Take, for example, the paradox in the prophecy that is hinted at with this imagery in the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. Again, written 800 years before Revelation. In Isaiah 52, 13, it says that the Messiah of God will be lifted up with imagery of victorious reign. Behold, my servant, it says, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But then it says in Isaiah 53, just a few verses later, that he is also a sacrificial lamb, this same servant. Isaiah 53, 4 through 7 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How can the servant of God that brings salvation be both exalted and sacrificed? Because he was enthroned by the way of his atoning death on the cross. That's how. 
resurrection and exaltation only came through death. Now, this is a way completely foreign to the understanding of man. But friends, this is the way of the cross. The imagery goes even deeper and farther back than that. To the Jewish audience that was at the core of the early church, the slain lamb would have reminded them of the Passover lamb that's used as part of the Passover feast meant to bring remembrance of the Lord's salvation from Egypt. And notice, finally, that this lamb is also pictured as having seven horns with seven eyes, which, like the Ancient of Days, pictures an ultimate power. Seven, the number of perfect completeness. Perfect omniscience that allows him insight into each of the churches from chapters 2 and 3. And perfect power and authority to overcome the beast spoken of in Daniel and that we will see later in Revelation. Within this language, we see the perfect Holy Spirit of God in the horns and eyes of the Lamb. We see the Lamb that was slain and conquered as a lion. And we see him seated upon the throne of the Ancient of Days. Brothers and sisters, behold our triune God. One God, three persons. Now do you see why it's a masterpiece? This equality of the three persons, one God, is seen as we read on. Notice what verse 7 says. It says, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Not only did he approach the Almighty seated upon the throne, but he took the scroll, the very plan and covenant of God, the title deed to earth. And not only that, in chapters 6 through 8, verse 1 of Revelation, this will show us that he opens and accomplishes the plan. He breaks the seals. Jesus is the only one who can open the seals, for he alone was both man and God. He alone was lifted up after dying as the suffering servant. He alone accomplishes the ultimate exodus of God's people from the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus alone was given dominion presented in the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel by the Ancient of Days. Jesus alone fulfills all these promises. It's because of his worthiness in all these ways that what we then see in Revelation 5 is the long-awaited new song that celebrates the Messiah's victory. The long-awaited new song celebrating the Messiah's victory. Let's listen in to this new song as we read beginning in, verses, or in verse 8 of chapter 5. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Throughout Scripture, new songs were composed and performed to declare new acts of God in deliverance. You can think of the song of Exodus 15, and you can go read it this week on your own in Exodus 15, in which Moses sings in triumph after the miraculous deliverance from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Or maybe even at this time of year, you can think of the Magnificent, of Mary praising God for the plan of the Messiah. It's a form of a victory song. But perhaps the most cherished new song in the Bible is the one that is promised in Isaiah 42. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 42? This section of Isaiah 42 through 53 is a beautiful section that has a ton of imagery that relates to the chapter 5 of Revelation. If you want to do an in-depth study, you can, chapters 42 through 53, and compare it to the imagery of chapter 5 in Revelation. But specifically here in Isaiah 42, God is promising Israel a Messiah Savior. Let's take a look specifically starting at verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. God is promising Israel a Messiah Savior. This promise of a Messiah who will bring salvation to the farthest reaches of the world, even beyond Israel. And when it is accomplished, there will be a new song that is sung. For Israel, this promise of a Messiah would mean that they would be redeemed from their idolatrous sin, and their covenant relationship with Yahweh would be complete. They would finally fulfill their role as a kingdom of priests to their God. And the very promise that God made them, made the people of Israel, would be established forever. For he had promised them in Exodus 19, If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." This is the promise that he had made Israel. And when this Messiah fulfills his purpose, this new song will be sung in celebration of this victory. And it's this redemptive action that is celebrated in the second half of the song, the second half of the song from Revelation 5. For in the death and resurrection and enthronement of Jesus and the pouring out of his spirit into his covenanted people, he has eternally changed us and given us this identity an identity of a kingdom of priests that minister to him day and night. Citizens in his kingdom, serving as priests to our God 
victorious and reigning with him over the domain of sin and darkness. And who is it that leads this new song? It's the 24 elders from chapter 4, angelic beings representing the redeemed people of God from both the Old Testament and New. They have harps in their hands ready to bring praise through song. And in their other hands are bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints who have been crying out for redemption and salvation. And these prayers, like sweet incense, have filled the nostrils of God Almighty, motivating him to act on our behalf to bring his justice forth. But before we leave this new song, notice also the first half of the song and the scene of verses 11 and 12, and notice the similarities to what we read earlier in Daniel 7. Verses 11 and 12 speak to the numerous legions of angels singing this song of praise before the throne of the Ancient of Days. Verse 9 speaks of the fact that the one to whom they are singing is worthy to receive this praise because it was by his atoning blood on the cross of Calvary. It was by this blood that he ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you hear Daniel 7 coming through? John, here in his vision in Revelation 5, is proclaiming that Jesus has become the ultimate Passover lamb. Through the work of the cross of Calvary, through the firstborn of the resurrection, Jesus, God has given eternal security to his people by his blood. And this act of redemption and ransom was not just for Israel, praise God. It was for all Jews and Gentiles across the world so that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus might be saved from their sin and reconciled to God. It was for you and it was for me. In this heavenly scene, John is also proclaiming to the church that the vision of the prophet Daniel, the vision of the Ancient of Days, handing his kingdom over to the Son of Man, has been completed. It was completed upon the cross of Calvary. In Jesus of Nazareth's death and resurrection, the promises of God to Israel were fulfilled. There is nothing further that needs to be fulfilled. God's people, his church, made up of Jew and Gentile, now simply await the consummation of that victory. And now as we sit in this in-between time of the church age, awaiting that truth and watching the events that are recapitulated and spoken through the visions of chapters 6 through 22 in, in Revelation, as we wait, we can be assured that God's salvation has come to all creation and will be completed in his timing. And John captures this idea of salvation being completely here but not fully present as he next pictures the heavenly truth yet to be fully enacted upon the earth, one which will come to pass through the events pictured throughout the rest of the book of Revelation that we will be going through. Here, finally, we see in the last two verses the hope of redeemed creation where every knee bows before the king. The hope of redeemed creation where every knee bows before the king. Friends, this is what we sing of at Christmas. This is what we long for in the dark nights of winter as we celebrate the light. The hope of redeemed creation where every knee bows before the king. Let's read verses 13 and 14. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Friends, the word is clear. 
All of Scripture is clear. Even as we heard in our first reading from Philippians, that every creature on this earth from every generation will eventually bow the knee to Christ. They may not know it yet, but they will. For some, it will be in willing adoration because our hearts have been captured by the living God. And we know that without his salvation, we would still be dead in our sin. We would be that unworthy creation, unable to save ourselves. For others, it will be because they have been crushed beneath his awesome and righteous judgment over them. But unfortunately, at that moment, it will be too late for them to enter into reconciliation with him. Friend, don't let it be too late for you this morning. Answer the call of Christ and humble yourself before his benevolent reign as Savior and Lord. If you'd like to do that, one of the pastors would love to talk with you after the service about what it looks like for you to repent from your sin and to be baptized into Christ and into his people. But here we see this worship come from every point of heaven in all creation because the victorious lion and the sacrificed lamb will now begin to open the seals on the scroll and the rest of the redemptive plan of history will be revealed. But as we stop in this text this morning and as we sit here, I wonder what we are to take away from this amazing vision. Hopefully each of us in some way have been struck by the amazing miracle of God's redemptive plan and the beauty of God's word that so clearly speaks it forth. If your head is spinning at all the various places we turned in Scripture, go back and re-listen to the sermon. Go back and re-study all of the Scriptures we've looked at and let the amazing nature of the word overwhelm you that it has spoken so clearly of this Savior. Hopefully each of us is humbled by the cost of salvation to bring us to new life in Christ. But I also wonder in the midst of this vision if we're also supposed to walk away from this text with more clarity, not only about who our Savior and Lord is, but also what we are to look like as we follow him in the way of the cross. In the conquering lion and the sacrificed lamb, we have so clearly seen the way of the cross. What is this, you say? What is this way of the cross you keep speaking of? It's achieving victory through death. It's conquering and overpowering through what seems like to the world earthly weakness. It is the martyrs of chapter 2 and 3 that conquered a persecuting world by caring little for their own lives. It is the tens and hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters throughout the world this very day who care so little for their own lives that they are willing to gather in the midst of immense persecution and threat of martyrdom. It's a conquering lion standing as slain upon the throne. This vision is meant to perplex our humanity for it shows that the true triumph did not come through political or military might. It came through the weakness of crucifixion. And this is why the way of Christ is so foreign to the world and even sometimes to our own hearts, the hearts of his believers. Listen to Paul capture this same thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 18 through 24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I wonder then how we might walk away in the way of the cross. For the early church and many of our brothers and sisters, as I said, throughout the world today, the way of the cross does mean martyrdom and death in the name of Christ. And we too, even in America, should acknowledge that this should be Excuse me, this should be our level of allegiance to Christ. That we take on a willingness to die for the sake of his name. Are you willing to die for the sake of his name? But then for most of us in this room today, it's more of the question, what do we need to die to today? What part of our flesh and our rebellious independence needs to be crucified right now. As many lobby and position for power in our world today and grasp for control over what cannot be controlled, I wonder what kind of impact we would have if we sought power not through earthly wisdom, if we sought strength not through earthly wisdom, but through the way of the cross. The true saints of God will be referred to later in chapter 14 as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And so, in what areas Do we today need to follow him in his willingness to die so that the Father might be glorified? In what areas do you need to stop pursuing strength and instead pursue surrender so that we can triumph in him? I think many of us still believe that being a Christian is to persevere in our own strength, it's to get more holy, to work harder to be better, more prosperous, to become more holy people. Because we can, gosh darn it, we're Americans. But the reality of the vision we have seen today is that we cannot. We can't. In our own power, and our own worth, we are unworthy and unable. But in Christ, all things are possible. Salvation, reconciliation, and victory over sin. For some of us, the way of the cross is to take a step forward in repentance from sin that has a hold on us. And for us to do that, we will need to be vulnerable and vulnerably admit our need for help to God and to his people. It means finally admitting that we are too weak to handle whatever it is that we are tempted by. We will need to bring our weakness and sin out of the darkness and into the light. And we will need to confess our sin to those we have harmed and find out what restitution and restoration looks like. For some of us, the way of the cross is to seek reconciliation in relationships. Perhaps it's in your marriage, with your children or parents, Maybe it's with your roommates or 
with close friends here in this church. The way of the cross is to vulnerably admit your part in the relational wreckage and to vulnerably ask the other party for help in connection rather than pointing the finger in blame. The way of the cross is to admit your need for one another. For some of us, the way of the cross is to stop attempting to look strong like we have it all together. To stop using phrases like, too blessed to be stressed. (laughs) And instead to admit that we are weak and needy and in need of pastoral care to help us deal with the sins we have done or the sins that have been done to us. Perhaps, if not in the church, it's to seek help outside the church through professional care. Friends, do any of these resonate with you? I hope they do. And I hope you can walk in the way of the cross today as you follow Jesus. I love a quote from Paul David Tripp in his book, Lead, that we're reading as elders. Fear of looking weak and needy will rob us of the help we need for spiritual health. How true that is. When we come to the cross of Christ, when we stand at his throne and see the lamb sacrificed for us, we are admitting already that our ultimate need is salvation from ourselves and from the world that wants to sell us the lie that we can be gods. But only one is God. And he has given us all that we need to pursue holiness. In Christ, the sacrificial lamb, we have been saved from ourselves and the kingdom of darkness. And in Christ, the reigning lion, we have been raised up to rule over sin and to proclaim his glories as a kingdom of priests. To proclaim the glories of a worthy king who conquered through weakness. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of this king, likewise in a weak manner, this Next weekend, we will look at this passage, this passage in 1 Corinthians, and we will see that there could have been no more menial or small birth. And so as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord at Christmas, let's ask if our lives and if our mouths proclaim the truth, proclaim the very truth that was sung here in chapter 5. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. Amen.